Have you ever had um, an embarrassing moment that you caused? Now, I don't mean like by accident, but like you did something intentionally that eventually led to your embarrassment. There was a, a young executive in a company. He had recently been promoted to be a young executive in this company. He had worked himself up from the bottom uh, to the top, got himself a corner office with windows. It was his first uh, day in that new office. He had moved up to the executive floor. And as he sat behind his desk on that first day, he kind of put his hands on the desk and he's like, all right, I have arrived. I've worked hard. I've, I've made it. Now he was going to have a bunch of people reporting uh, to him, and they would be able to acknowledge his position uh, in the company. And so he just, he kind of felt like, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm somebody now. A knock came on the door that first morning, and the first person um, that was visiting him, he thought, you know, who could this be? I got a lot of people that I don't know on this floor. And so he tells the person to come in, but then after he told him to come in, he immediately thought, oh, I, I want them to know, you know, I'm busy and I'm doing stuff. So he picked up the phone right away. And he started talking on the phone, and he's like, listen, you tell Mr. Jones that if he doesn't go along with the $3 million deal, like, we're dropping it. Like, you know, he's either in or he's out. That's it. Final. And the person walks in, he's like, and he, no, I'm telling you, that's how we do things around here. And he hangs up, hangs up the phone, and he looks at the person, and he doesn't know the individual that's standing before him, this guy. Uh, and he says, sorry, important, you know, phone call. How can I help you? And the guy just looks at him hangs his head, and he says, I'm here to set up your phone. <laughs> what happened in that moment, right? The guy quickly knew embarrassment. He wanted to make himself seem important to the individual that he was talking to, and in doing so, made an absolute fool of himself. He was embarrassed, but what caused the embarrassment? Ultimately, it was his pride. He felt like he was a somebody. He wanted other people to know that he was a somebody, and so he was embarrassed. What I want to tell you, though, this morning is that pride, it's not just something that can be, or I should say, it's not just something that can lead us to embarrassment, but it's something that can be actually very destructive, even devastating to your life. We're going to look in the book of Daniel today, in Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to see this. We're going to see the devastating impact that pride can have upon an individual if it's not dealt with. Now, here's the thing when you talk about pride. When you talk about pride, C.S. Lewis makes a great point. He, he, he says this in one of his books. He says, there is one vice which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. There's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is what? Pride. Lewis makes a couple of observations about pride. He says, we don't like it when we see it in others. But he also says what? We rarely see it in ourselves. In fact, in all my years of ministry, I can't recall one person ever coming to me for counseling and saying, Pastor Dave, I'd, I'm really struggling with the sin of pride. Would you, would you help me out? It's one of those sins that is just so subtle that we rarely think that we struggle with, but we can see it in others. And yet, as we're going to see in our story this morning in the narrative, it is so ultimately 
destructive. And the reality is it's, it's far more reaching than most people realize. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Daniel chapter 4. And, and as we look at Daniel chapter 4, I, I want to give you just some insight into um, this, this little chapter. We're going to come to pride in kind of a roundabout way as we look at this story. See, in Daniel chapter 4, I don't have time to kind of recap, but Daniel chapter 4 takes place 20 years after the events of Daniel chapter 3, the events of the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, Daniel chapter 4 starts with King Nebuchadnezzar, and the bulk of this chapter is about King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, this is the last time that we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, at this point in time, when chapter 4 starts, he is truly one of if not the most powerful man in the world. His kingdom of Babylon stretches far and wide. He's built the hanging um, gardens of Babylon, which would become one of the seven wonders of the world. So he has all this power, and he has all this might. But when you come to Daniel chapter 4, listen to how it starts. Daniel does something here really interesting. He actually, in Daniel chapter 4, he is quoting a letter that Nebuchadnezzar wrote to the citizens of Babylon. It's really an interesting thing. And so here's, here's what he records. Nebuchadnezzar says this. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. So this is a, a letter from the king to his people. Verse 2. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is a remarkable statement. It's remarkable because it's coming from a pagan king acknowledging the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar, who referred to himself in ancient writings as the king of kings, he is writing here and he is saying, there is one greater than I, whose dominion is greater than my dominion and will last longer than mine will last. On the face of it, you would expect a passage like this to be printed in your Bibles. But remember, before this was printed in your Bible, this was a letter that Nebuchadnezzar had written to his citizens. And it begs the question, why would Nebuchadnezzar say this to his citizens? In fact, he comes and he tells us something had happened to him. And he's writing this letter to show his people the signs and the wonders, what has led him to conclude that there is a great God over all. Now, what I'm going to do next here is I'm going to read to you how Nebuchadnezzar came to that conclusion. And instead of just summarizing this text, I want you to buckle up with me because we're going to read the entirety of the rest of this chapter. Because as I learned as I was studying, I can't summarize it better than God can write it, all right? So let's just sit back, let us listen to what Nebuchadnezzar has to say about what changed his mind to see God as the king over all things. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. Once again, he has a dream. As I lay in the bed, as I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. 
And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation, just like what had happened in chapter 2. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and he whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The vision of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found their shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip it of its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Look what happens. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Do you know why his thoughts alarmed him? you know why he was dismayed? He knew what the dream meant. He knew who it was for. He knew it was bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. And do you want to be the one who gives bad news to the king? No, no you don't. And guess what? Nebuchadnezzar noticed this. He saw the hesitation. The king answered and said to Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you, Belshazzar answered and said, and Belshazzar answered and said, my Lord, May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Do you see what he's doing there? He, he's, he's like delaying the inevitable. He's like, we, I hope it's for somebody else. And then he tells them the dream. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to the heavens, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. We're like, yeah, we already know this. You already said it. See how he's buying time? It is you, O king. It's you. You, you who have grown and become strong, your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Now, what happens to the tree? <laughs> well, and because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, 
in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till the seven periods of time pass over him? Daniel says, this is the interpretation. O king, it's a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. You're going to get your kingdom back. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Now, he doesn't just give him the interpretation. He, he actually gives him counsel. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He gives the interpretation. He gives the counsel. And what happens next? Well, nothing. Verse 28 says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, but when? Look at this. At the end of 12 months, literally a year later, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't change anything about his ways in light of this. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men, and gives it to whom he will." Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, like an 80s rock band, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and I was still more, more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Yeah. Like I said, I couldn't summarize it better than God's word tells it. It's a really profound story. Odd, strange in some ways. 
And when you come to a story like this, a narrative in the Bible, sometimes you take a step back and you have to think, okay, what's going on here? Like, what's the point? What's God trying to communicate? Because I know every word in here has purpose and meaning. Every story is intended to communicate something. But, but what's it all about? Fortunately for us in this story, Daniel chapter 4 is not one of those stories where you got to guess at it where you have to wonder, what is this story really about? Like, what's the message? What's God trying to communicate here? Because over and over again, we are told that what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in this story happened because God was trying to communicate a point. He says it in verse 17. All of this is happening so that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and he gives it to whom he will and he sets over it the lowliest of men. And then he comes in verse 25 and says, all this is happening till you know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. In verse 32 he says, all this is happening until you know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And then finally in verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar says, I get it. God, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? All that Nebuchadnezzar experienced is there to communicate to him and to us a very simple and yet profound truth that comes in two parts. It is this. God alone reigns over all, and we are not just simply to acknowledge that he reigns, but we're to embrace his reign and to embrace his rule. You see, we see this truth come out in what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who thought so highly of himself, and God brings him low. He says, you think that you created all this? You think this was your might and power? No, this was me. I can raise you up. I can take you down. That is who I am. But he doesn't just want Nebuchadnezzar to know that. He doesn't want to just know that I'm sovereign and in control and, and working all things according to the counsel of my will. He wants Nebuchadnezzar ultimately to turn from rejecting that and not acknowledging that to embracing it. It's why Daniel comes and calls upon him in the midst of it all, repent, turn, so these things might not happen, so that you might experience prosperity yet longer. Church family, the message of Daniel chapter 4 is God reigns over all. There's not one kingdom that's established. There's not one person in a position of authority that God has not established there. And as quickly as he puts them there, he can take them down. And your life and my life need to not just simply acknowledge this truth, but believe it, embrace it, believe that we are to submit to his reign and his rule. Now, if you've been with us in the book of Daniel, some of you might be thinking right now, this sounds awfully familiar. I feel like this point's been made once or twice already in the book of Daniel. And if you're thinking that right now, I'd say, well, thank you so much for listening. I mean, that's just great. You've been paying attention. This is good. God wants that for his people. But I would also tell you this. You're right in noticing that pattern. But why? Why does God keep coming back to this truth over and over again? Why the repetition, God? Why do you just keep throwing that before us? I would venture a guess 
that God does that for us for the same reason we repeat things to our kids. God repeats it over and over again through the stories of the book of Daniel for the same reason that you and I find ourselves having to repeat things to our children because we just don't get it. <laughs> that we're tempted to lose sight of the fact as we go through our lives that he is in control, that he is reigning and ruling, and that we ourselves are tempted to not come under and to embrace his reign and rule, but to act as the ones who rule over our own lives. And the reason why God wants us to understand this truth and to take hold of it is because not only does what happens to Nebuchadnezzar illustrate God's power and control, it also illustrates to us that when we fail to embrace God's reign, it leads to destruction. It's not just a suggestion that you acknowledge his reign and rule, but we are being called to embrace it because God knows that when we're not living underneath him, when we're not submitted to him, it leads to destruction. In the story, God illustrates it by having Nebuchadnezzar lose his mind. And I've often wondered to myself, actually for years I would think, why doesn't he just kill Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, that would make the point, wouldn't it? I mean, if all of a sudden Nebuchadnezzar is failing to, to, to submit himself to God, if he's exalting himself over God, like God should have just killed him because God does that sometimes. We see that in the Bible. He punishes. He, he demonstrates his, his judgment and wrath in that way. So why doesn't he do it to Nebuchadnezzar? I think there's a very profound reason why he doesn't do it. And it goes all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. You see, in Genesis, we are told that you and I have been created in the image of who? God. Every human being was created in the image of God, meaning that we were created, as we talk about here as a church, to reflect his character, to reflect his nature, to engage the world in a way that God would engage the world. Human beings, no other animal, was given that, the image of God. Now, in order to bear God's image, to be an accurate reflection of him, it requires something of us, it requires us to submit fully to his reign and rule, to believe that the way that he has called us to live is the only way to live. To reject his reign and rule is to ultimately invite death and destruction, but it is something else. You see, when you don't live as God has called you to live as a reflection of who he is, if you were literally made to reflect his image, and if you're failing to reflect his image, then you and I are no better than the beasts. The very one thing that makes you and I human is that God made you in his image. He didn't make the monkey in his image. But when you and I fail to submit to his reign and rule, we are no better than beasts. I believe that what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and him losing his mind and acting like a beast of the field is God coming and saying, do you want to know from heaven's perspective what humanity looks like when they fail to submit to my reign and rule to embrace me as king? You look like the beasts. There's no difference because the image is no longer present in you. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes for a period of time, some think it was seven years, we don't know, it was just, it was the perfect amount of time. It says a period of seven. He loses his mind. Paul would write in Romans chapter one 
that this is exactly what happens. It says in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness for man has substituted the truth of God for a lie. Paul says in Romans, and then he says in Romans 5, in one twenty-five, he says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever, amen, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28 says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The way of destruction comes upon all of us when we fail to acknowledge God as king. Nebuchadnezzar and what happens to him is just illustrative of this. But you and I already know this to be true. Like, even if you're not a Christian, I'm, it's crazy to me that when somebody treats another human being in ways that are just kind of so wrong and unimaginable, we say they're acting what? Inhumane. Every so often on Sunday mornings before I come here, I'll just go and I'll just check the news to see if anything's taken place. And I came across a really tragic story this morning of a woman here in California who was arrested because she stabbed to death her three little children. And you look at that and you say, that is what? It's inhumane. Why do you, why do, you do that? God's word has the answer. When God is replaced in our lives, it leads to destructive patterns of life in speech and behavior in relationships. You want to know true life. You have to accept God's reign and rule in your life, but the story tells us that there is something inside every single one of us that hinders that from happening. It's the thing that I said in the very beginning. We often don't recognize in ourselves, but we see it in others. Do you know what the thing is that keeps you and I from submitting to the reign and rule of God. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Now I do, now I do, for all his works are right and all his ways are just. This is a guy who lost his mind, by the way. And those who walk in what? Pride. He is able to humble. I told you we'd get there. <laughs> told you we'd get there. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that the thing that kept him, the thing that blocked him from being able to, to hear the rebuke and, and to walk in submission to God was pride in his life. Friends, it is pride. It's Nebuchadnezzar's pride. It's our pride that keeps us from embracing God's reign over our lives. But the hard thing with pride is we rarely see it in ourselves. But listen to the writer of Proverbs long before, long before Nebuchadnezzar. Some of you might be thinking, well, this is my message for that guy over there or for somebody else. Just, just listen, just listen. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before destruction. Both Peter and James in the letters that they would write say God opposes the proud. You do not want God opposing you. It leads to destruction. The question is, can we identify it in our lives? 
Do we really believe that it's there? Do I believe it's a problem for me? Because if I'm not walking in submission to God, it's because pride has taken root in my life. And if pride has taken root in my life and I'm not submitting to God, I'm on a path to destruction. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, undealt with pride keeps you from rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior. And when you do that, the wages of sin is death. If you're a Christian here today and say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, but you have pride keep coming into your heart, it's going to lead to destructive relationships, destructive patterns of living that God doesn't want for you, that you've been freed from through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ from the dead. But in order to address pride, you have to deal with, can I see it in myself? Do I really see it? You see, here's how we identify pride. I want to give you four ways really quick. First and foremost, you know that you have pride in your heart when you believe that you are the cause of your success. That you're the cause of your success. That what you have, what you've obtained, is because of the things that you have done. That was Nebuchadnezzar's problem. I, I love that moment. I love that moment in verse 29. When he comes and he stands in his royal palace... He probably is kind of like this, right? In that moment, he's like standing there and he's looking out and he says these words. Is not this great Babylon which I have made with my might? For my glory, he's looking out and it says, while the words were still in his mouth, God struck him. The thing though with this, we see it so clearly, the pride in Nebuchadnezzar. But for non-Christians and even Christians, rarely do we display the kind of hubris that he does here, right? Rarely do you come out to somebody and say, I'm the greatest. Look at what I've done. I was able to do that thing. I, I like to joke about this when I'm actually at, at my home. I'll often quote Nebuchadnezzar. You know, I'll complete a task and say, is this not the great weeded garden which I have made with my own hands? You know, like we'll joke about that, but rarely will you come out and say it. But let me tell you how you think about it. It's when you see somebody who has a rebellious child and you look at that family with a rebellious child and you say something in your mind like this, you know, if they had simply done X, Y, Z with that child, their child would not be as rebellious as they are. See, because you know what's implied in that statement when I think that? It's that if I had done it and if I had handled it this way, I would have been met with success. It's the same thing here of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar standing and saying, is this not the great Babylon? It's when you look at somebody and say, you know what? They're in some financial troubles. I gave them the advice. If they had just followed my advice, they wouldn't be where they're at. It's the same person who lacks generosity. You know why we lack generosity? It's because we believe that we've contributed to our success. Why should I give of my time? Why should I give of my energy? I mean, I worked hard for the things that I have, and now you want me to give it to somebody else? God said to Nebuchadnezzar first, and then he says to us, you had nothing to do with your success. I can raise up the lowliest. I can lower the highest. A woodpecker was one time pecking away at a great oak tree. Lightning struck the tree, and the bird flew away just at the last moment, landed on another branch, and watched as the lightning struck the tree and split it in half. And the woodpecker looked at the tree and said, look what I did. <laughs> That's us. God says, you want to know pride? 
This is what it looks like. And by the way, pride is one of those sins that produces so many others. You see, because when we are functioning in our pride, we're lying. We're lying. Because we're saying that this thing that I've, that I've got, I had something to do with. When in reality, you didn't. So it's a lie. Not only is it a lie, it's stealing. God says, I don't give my glory to who? Anyone else. And yet when you say this is because of you, you're robbing me of my glory. He says it in Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Pride causes you to think that you're the one who contributed to your success. Second point, when there's pride in your heart, you don't accept the correction of others. You do not accept correction. Daniel comes in verse 27 and says, O king, here's the interpretation, but listen to my counsel. Turn away and practice righteousness. Show mercy to the oppressed. Would you just do it? And right after that, Nebuchadnezzar responds by doing nothing. He continues on his path. And what does he come and say? He says instead, look at what I've done. Are you someone who listens and hears others when they seek to correct you? Are you someone that is opening to hear what others have to say when they see something in your life? If your first thought as you're engaging somebody in conversation is, you know what? They're wrong. They don't know. They're mistaken. If, if that's your default, there's pride inside of your heart and you're not going to hear the correction of others and you're sure not going to hear the correction and the blessing that comes from that correction from the word of God. I know we got some young people here today, so I'm going to step on your toes for a minute. <clears throat> Don't worry, I'm going to step on your parents' toes just after that, okay? It's pride in a young person that keeps them from hearing the correction of their parents. When some parent comes to you and they say, listen, you're going down a road here. This, this is not good for you. I'm, 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 I'm telling you, you need to stop that way. And you say, think to yourself, no, but this is what I want. I'm going to go the way that I want to go. That's pride. But listen, I'm going to talk to the parents just for a minute. Parents, are you open to hearing what your children might have to say to you? I'm not giving children the permission to just simply come and yell at their parents. But if your child comes to you and says, I, you know, that wasn't gentle in the way that you were correcting me. Dad, you're, you're, you're getting really angry here. You do not accept the correction of others. It's pride. It's pride that says, you know what? In order for me to actually hear correction, the person needs to speak to me in this way or that way. Do they really need to? Are you setting up what you think? It's pride in the heart. All right, I got to zip through this two more. You think only of yourself. You think only of yourself. You know, there's this crazy thing that uh, um, the Kim Sung in South, I'm sorry, North Korea, don't want to confuse the two, in North Korea when he came to power in 1948, you know what he did? He said that no children in North Korea could celebrate their birthday. Did you know that? The law was passed, no child could celebrate their birthday in North Korea. Do you know whose birthday they could celebrate? His. That was the only birthday that could be celebrated. This was a man who was consumed with this, thinking only of his self. 
And guess what? Nebuchadnezzar was the same. You say, where do you see that in the text? The one thing in verse 27 that Nebuchadnezzar is called upon to do is show mercy to the oppressed. God comes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, don't you see? One of the ways that you can tell that you don't have pride in your life is those who are oppressed receive mercy. You have empathy for others. If there's no empathy in your heart, you're so self-centered, so self-focused, and that's all because of pride. Again, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self. You walk into a room, is... How does the temperature feel for me? Is there enough food for me? You don't even really notice anyone else's pain. You don't notice anyone else's hurt. The only hurt that you ever care about or think about is your own. These are evidences of pride. Is it in your heart? Do you see how how subtle it is? It's not just standing up and saying, I am the greatest. You know, that's not what pride is. In fact, one final thing about pride in the heart Pride is your opinion of yourself is the only one you believe. I think in your notes it says this, you think you are better or worse. Like, see, pride comes in your heart and it tells you two things. It either, one, it comes and it tells you you're the greatest or it comes to you and it says you're worthless. Both are evidences of pride. We acknowledge pride as the thing that comes and says I am better than you, but pride is also when you believe that you're worse than others. As a Christian, I can come to you today and say, you are a blessed and redeemed child of God who is perfect in his sight. He has made you his own. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. And if your response to that is, I can't be, that's pride. Pride makes you think lowly of yourself because the only opinion that you're listening to is you. You come and you think in your mind, it's like, I can't be loved by God. I can't be seen by him as righteous. I can't be, I can't be. A low view of yourself is ultimately rooted in pride because what you're saying is, I know better than God knows who I am. In the same way that pride manifests itself is, I know better than God knows that I'm better than I am. Do you see that both are pride? I've had people in my office for counseling and they struggle with accepting who they are in and through Jesus Christ and they're, and they're lamenting it and it's, and it's a hard thing in the heart to, to, to have these thoughts that you're no good and that Jesus Christ can't really love you and I have to look at them in all love and gentleness and say, that's pride that's making you believe that. And they're like, what? It's not lowliness. It's not a broken spirit. It's too high a view of your own opinion of yourself. So this is what pride is, and it's in us. And so what are we to do? Fortunately for us, this isn't a text that just says pride is a problem. This is a text that shows us that God is merciful to the proud. Can I get an amen to that? If God were not merciful to the proud of whom Nebuchadnezzar is our illustrative head, none of us could know his love. None of us could know his blessing. But church, God shows mercy to the proud. Not only does he give Nebuchadnezzar opportunity to repent, but after he brings Nebuchadnezzar low, he brings him back. And Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of the text, says, now I know. Why? Because God showed him mercy. He didn't destroy him, although God would have been right to do so. You know who else he didn't destroy? Us. And instead, for God so loved the world that he gave us, his one and only son, to what? 
save us, to rescue, to redeem us from the sin that binds us, that leads into pride, that blocks us from knowing. Instead of facing destruction because of our pride, you and I here today can put that off by believing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ for us, the work that Christ has done. Freedom from pride starts with acknowledging that you're a sinner in need of salvation. And pride then, if you believe that to be true and you've accepted the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian here today and you still see evidences of pride in your life, then you come back to God, your Savior, and you do three things. The first thing you do is you admit your pride. Daniel called upon Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, deal with your pride. You want to overcome it? Just admit your pride. When you see it, confess it. Confess your pride. Believe that you need salvation and that you and I can't rid ourselves of our pride in and of ourselves, but through Jesus Christ, we can because he has freed us from the bondage and the power of sin over us. So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, man, no, there is pride in my heart. Jesus Christ came to give you the grace sufficient enough for you to conquer all the sin in your life to the praise and the glory of, of his name. Believe you need that salvation. And then, I don't think this is in your notes. I changed it, man. But confess God's supremacy through praise. Confess God's supremacy through praise. How do I keep before my mind that God reigns, that he's in control? How do I not let my heart fall into pride? I confess to God his supremacy and praise. That's what Nebuchadnezzar does at the start of his letter. That's what he does at the end. He says, now I know God is on his throne. His dominion lasts forever and ever. It's not David Wojnicki's kingdom. It's not my needs that are ultimate. God, you are the one who I submit to fully. Your first step into Christianity is doing just this. To become a Christian, for those of you that already are believers of Jesus Christ, then you know you, what this step looks like. You know it's coming and confessing these things to be true. And that God meets you there in the place and he takes the proud and he humbles them because we see in our sin and our brokenness that we can never measure up. But Jesus Christ left glory, left his throne, humbled himself to save and to redeem us from the bondage of this. So here's my question. Do you want to keep walking in pride? Do you want to be freed from it today? I want you to do something with me right now. I want you to take the communion elements. There's some in the back on the welcome table. If you don't have them, don't worry. We're not going to embarrass you if you've got to go, go up and get it. There's some even right here. You know, we take communion every single week as a church, and one of the reasons why we do that is because in the taking of communion, we're reminding ourselves of our insufficiency, but the glory and the power and the majesty of God, amen? Because Christ on that night when he took the bread, I invite you to take it with me, he took the bread on that night, and he held it in his hands and he broke it. In church, he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do you know what the implication is? You can't do it. Don't think that you have the power to do it. You can't. This is my body which is given for you. And today, church, if you know and believe that to be true, as a follower of Jesus, take, eat it, and do it in remembrance of him. And in the same way, later in the night, he took the cup and he blessed it. 
He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus said, I'm not going to drink of it again until I drink of it in glory with you. When we drink of the cup, we acknowledge our sins are forgiven by his blood. He paid it all. His death was sufficient. I couldn't do it. I humble myself. You humble yourselves as we drink and proclaim what Christ has done in remembrance of him. And so, Lord, as we come to your table, as we've come to your word, we hear, we receive this great blessing from you, your rich word, which fills our souls with the knowledge we need in order to not only have new life, but to live that new life now. Lord, you know where our hearts need to go today in regards to pride. Lord, free us from it as we look to Christ and then, Lord, as we take of this cup and of this bread, Lord, we find our joy, we find our strength, we find our sustenance in knowing that it is the work that you have done that empowers and enables us until you call us home. And so you, to you be glory both now and forevermore. And we say this collectively as all God's people. Amen and amen.